0: Well, good morning, City Light. Uh, As Chris said, my name is Andrew Rutten. I am on staff here with the church, primarily doing uh, college ministry. Uh, And as he said, I've been here since day one. And so it's been uh, a joy for me to get to watch what God has done here at City Light. And even more so for me, it's been a joy to find uh, a true church family here. I uh, I was thinking, man, as I look around the room, many of you. Have supported me when I was an intern. Many of you fed me when I was poor right out of college. Uh, you guys have invited Bailey and I over into your homes. You've shared your lives and joys and tears with me, and now we get to go through God's Word together. And so uh, it's a joy for me. I am sincerely grateful for you guys, and I'm grateful for the Word of God. And so uh, if you have not yet done so, would you flip in your Bible? to Luke 22. And while you do that, I'm going to pray quickly to begin. Father, I thank you for just the gathered church, for your people to come, and as Gabe said, to sit under your word and your teaching for us this morning. Would you be with us? Would your spirit come and help us and guide us as we go through your word today? pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, City see As we get into Luke 22, which is where we're going to be at this morning, what we're going to see is some of Jesus's last words. We're going to see uh, His, his uh, last teachings and his final hours and his final day here on Earth. This is his final meal, his last time with his disciples. You know, It seems to me that it's kind of like, uh, I don't know if any of you watch the Oscars on Sunday, or really, uh, if you watch any award show, it can be the Grammys or the ESPYs or, or anything, when somebody wins an award, they, they get to come up and they get to give uh, an acceptance speech. And they get this allotted amount of time to give their speech, to thank people and say whatever they want. To say Now, most people just kind of begin rambling and rambling and they're thanking their fourth cousin and their dog for their support and for the person they just met and for the person they're sitting next to and everybody. But then pretty soon when they hit that time where they're allotted uh, to speak and they get to that point and they begin going over... What happens is there begins to be this music that plays, right? And the music begins really kind of soft and low, and then it gets louder, and it gets louder, and it becomes a not-so-subtle cue to this person that, like, you're done. You're, like, you're ty- you, you have to leave now. like You have no more time to speak. You need to get off the stage. But the crazy thing to me is that most people don't actually just stop talking when they hear the music begin playing. What they do is they, they talk even louder, and they, they get really focused in, and they say, okay, above all, I want to thank this one person, or they have one ideology that, that you have to believe this. You really need to care about this one thing, because when the music begins playing, and you realize you don't have much more time before you have to leave, you get very focused in on what is important. And I think as we approach Luke 22, we see the music begin playing for Jesus, You see, Jesus is approaching now the final hours before his upcoming betrayal, his arrest, his beatings, and his death. The music has begun playing for Jesus, and as the music begins playing, what do we see Jesus talk about? As he gets dialed in and extremely focused with his disciples, what does he see fit as the last thing that he wants to communicate? And see, like, it's one final teaching on the kingdom of God. He gets really focused, and as the music plays in his final hours, he teaches us one more time on the countercultural nature of God's kingdom. And this kingdom, God's kingdom, is not defined by geopolitical lines. It's, it's not. It doesn't have geographical boundaries. This kingdom is not just one specific people group. It's not one race, but God's kingdom. This kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom today that is made up of believers in Jesus all around the world. And this kingdom now, if you are a believer, is your primary citizenship. You are not primarily a citizen of America. You are primarily a citizen of God's kingdom. Well, the problem is, I think so often, we confuse how to live in God's kingdom with how to live in our American society. We begin to think that God's kingdom must just run just like American society runs. And I think that's why Jesus is going to hone in here and he's going to teach us on how to enter into this kingdom. How how do we live in this kingdom and what is the future for our kingdom? He's going to walk through these things for us and show us one more time how the kingdom of God is countercultural to us. And City Light, we need this message. We have to hear his teaching here because if we are believers, if we are Christians, if we are living in this world as a primary citizen in God's kingdom, then we need to know how do we live in this kingdom? How do we function in his kingdom? And so, what Luke is gonna do in this text is we're gonna look at Jesus' last teaching. And we're going to use uh, these three tables that we see. As we walk through uh, this text that was just read for us, we're going to find three tables. And what it's going to be is is a a physical table where Jesus is at, a metaphorical table where we're going to see this point illustrated, and then we're going to see a future table that we get to look forward to. And so I'm going to call these tables the Lord's table, our daily table, and our future table. All right? So that's where we're going to go. Let's go back into, if you have your Bibles, Luke 22, and we're going to start in verse 14, and we're going to look at the Lord's table. So verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said, this is Jesus, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God." Well, this passage that we just read is what Christians for years have called the the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is where we get our instructions for what we would call communion. And this is the day before Jesus dies, and this is his final meal with his disciples. And this table that they're sitting at, as they're talking in this text, we're calling the Lord's Table. It's the first table we're going to look at on how we enter into the kingdom of God. Now, so when we look at this text, what we want to do naturally is think, oh, yeah, I've read this text before. This is all about the bread and the juice and Jesus's death, and this is a communion text, and that's true, and that is good. But when he's sitting down to this meal talking, his disciples are not thinking, oh, yeah, that's right. I remember that Jesus is going to die tomorrow. They're not thinking, oh yeah, I remember that we're going to take the bread and dip it in the juice and and this is going to be our remembrance. What they are thinking is not about what is to come, but they are going back to what Jesus is referencing in the Old Testament. And I think this is huge for our church. That we need to know that the redemptive story of God, of God's salvation for all people, did not begin when Jesus was born. The redemptive story here is not just about uh, Matthew through Revelation. The story, it goes all the way back through the Bible because most of what we see in the New Testament are just promises fulfilled of the promises made in the Old Testament. And this text, Jesus is continually pointing back to what has happened in the Old Testament to show how he is going to fulfill it. And my fear for us is, is that we would become a church so stuck in the New Testament that we completely forget and ignore the Old Testament. See, like we need to know that Jesus didn't begin Christianity. He fulfilled Christianity. And so, we have to ask the question, what then did he fulfill? What is it exactly that he is talking about here? So if you look in verse 15, Jesus gives us our first reference back to the Old Testament. He says... I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. So, we need to ask the question what's the Passover? Why is this important? And why is Jesus earnestly desired, deeply longed for this meal? Well, this meal was a a huge spiritual holiday for the people of God for thousands of years. And what it does is it refers all the way back to the people of God in the book of Exodus. So let's just follow with me. Let's do a little history lesson. So we go all the way back to the beginning, second book of the Bible in Exodus. And in Exodus, we find the story of the Passover. You see, what we find is that for over 400 years, God's people, the Israelites, were enslaved to the Egyptians. So Pharaoh and the Egyptians were oppressing God's people for 400 years. However, God said that, "...I'm going to raise up a man named Moses." And he tells Moses, I'm going to use you to free my people. You are going to be the great savior for my people and free them out of physical slavery. And so the story goes that that Moses goes to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he tells him repeatedly the famous line, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, he says, no, not happening. I'm not letting all my slaves go. Go And so Moses goes back, and he continues to say no. And so God says, I'm now going to send these plagues against Egypt. So one plague hits, and then another plague hits, and then another plague hits. And Pharaoh continually says no. And so we have nine plagues that hit and strike Egypt, and Pharaoh continually says no. So one night, God tells Moses, here's what I'm going to do. It has become time for my wrath to be poured out against my enemies. And so God said, I'm going to sweep through the land of Egypt. And as I sweep through the land of Egypt, I am going to kill the firstborn son of every household. Doesn't matter if it's Pharaohs, the Egyptians, the Jews, the slaves, anybody. Every firstborn son will die because all were destined for God's punishment. But in great love and kindness, God provided a way of salvation for people through faith. You see, he told Moses, I'm going to sweep through and I'm going to kill all the firstborn sons unless a household would sacrifice a lamb. Now, if the household would sacrifice a lamb and kill the lamb and pour out the blood, and if that house would put the blood of the lamb over their doorposts, As I come through, I will pass over that household, and they will be saved from my judgment solely by being protected by the blood of the Lamb. And this scene comes true. God sweeps through Egypt and all who had the blood of the lamb over their doorpost, God would pass over and he would uh, save that house. But all who did not hide under the protection of the lamb were destined for God's punishment. And year after year, after Pharaoh then said, okay, you can be freed, go worship God, get out of Egypt. They every year would now celebrate in remembrance of the time where God would pass over from judging them because of the blood of the lamb. This is the meal that they are sitting down to. This is celebratory. This is how good God is that we get to sit here and remember when God passed over our people, when because of the blood of the lamb, God spared us of our punishment. This is the meal that they're at. But then Jesus goes on, and he doesn't say, so let's sacrifice another lamb. Let's, let's do this again and remember. Let's continue to remember back to what has happened. But as you look in verses 19 and 20, he begins doing something different. Now he says, he takes bread and he says, now this is my body which is broken for you. He goes on to say that that this is going to be my blood that is poured out for you, and this will be ushering in a new covenant. Again, all these things refer back to the Old Testament. You see, after the Jews were freed from slavery, what happened was God gave them his law, his will for how they should live. And he tells them, if you follow my law, you will be my people and I will be your God and I will dwell amongst you as my people. But unfortunately, as we know historically, or as we know even in our own lives, none of us can stand against the holiness of God. As God's perfect holiness is the record, none could stand. And this was true with God's people. So even though he freed them from their slavery, they immediately began worshiping other things. They began sinning and wandering from God. So again, in grace, God sets up a sacrificial system for them. He says, okay, if you do break my law, what you need to do is to continue to sacrifice an animal and you will be covered by the blood of that animal. This is what's called the old covenant. This is the old way of God and his people being united by the law. And then when you broke that law, that you were then destined for God's punishment unless there was blood to cover up your sins. Now, in Luke... What Jesus is doing here would be crazy to his disciples. You see, he's referring back to these Old Testament ways, these old covenants, and he's saying, now, there's not going to be a repeated sacrifice. We're not going to follow under the laws of the Old Covenant, but there's going to be a new way. He said there's going to be a new Passover. There's going to be a new covenant. There's going to be a new sacrificial system. What he's saying here by saying this is going to be my body broken, this is going to be my blood poured out, is that Jesus is saying everything that was happening then is pointing to a greater sacrifice, a greater Passover, a greater covenant. And he's saying that all these things will find their fulfillment in him. You see, City Light, this story of the Exodus, this story of the Old Covenant, this story of the people of God is pointing us to A greater Passover that Jesus, as he's sitting at this table, is pointing to just a few hours away. He's saying there is going to be a greater lamb that will be shed. There will be a greater blood that will be poured out. And you, people of God, will no longer need to remember this feeble lamb that's blood was over the doorpost. But we will now have a new lamb. By telling us that the sacrificial lamb that was killed um, to have his blood poured out is the old covenant. He's now saying, my blood poured out is going to usher in the new covenant. And this won't just free you from physical slavery. This is going to free you from your sins and your spiritual slavery. City Light, the judgment of God will pass over all people in the whole world of all time. If you are protected, not by the Lamb's blood of old, but by the blood of the Lamb of God. What Jesus is saying here is such good news for us city light. That through faith, we can be sheltered by the blood of the Lamb. He's saying, no longer do you need to work to try to get to God. No longer is there these religious systems and sacrifices that you have to do for God to dwell with you. No longer do you need to be enslaved to your sins. He's saying we now have the new lamb. We have the greater lamb. We have the blood of this lamb. And this blood ushers us into a covenant where God no longer dwells out there, but he now dwells inside of us. He says that now through this, because Jesus has removed your sins once and for all, that God now dwells in each of us. This is the great Passover. This is Jesus' new covenant that he's bringing, that if you are protected by the blood of the Lamb, God removes your sin. He frees you from spiritual slavery, and he now dwells inside of you. City Light, I... This is amazing. I remember just five years ago when this truth hit me for the very first time. I remember sitting in my dorm room at UNO, and I understood the grace of God for the first time to think that my sins, my slavery, was gone because of the blood of the Lamb, that God was no longer looking for my sacrifices, for my actions, but He was now passing over me. He was not having wrath poured out on me, because wrath was poured out on the Lamb of God. And so City Light, friends, is your life hid under the protection of the blood of the Lamb? We as a people are all sinners destined for the wrath of God. Are your sins covered by the blood of the lamb? Does your life have this lamb's blood as your shelter, as your protection? Do you believe that you no longer have to work towards God, but that you believe God came and shed his blood for you and that your life is hidden in Christ, that you are now protected by him. This is how you enter the kingdom of God. This is how you are saved. This is how you find life, not by working towards God, but by faith that we're just hiding under the protection of the blood of the lamb. And City Light, as we look at this in light of communion, when we take communion, what we are doing, the first step is that when we take that bread and dip it into that juice we are reminding ourselves of how we entered the kingdom of God we are reminding ourselves that we are saved solely through the broken body and shed blood of the lamb of God this is how we enter this is how we find life and this is how we find freedom by the blood of the lamb so the next question we should ask then is what does that look like for us today right? I mean, my sins are gone. I'm under the blood of the Lamb. How do I now live in God's kingdom? If I've entered through the blood of the Lamb, then how do I live? And I would argue that this is called our daily table. This table that we're going to see in a second in the next section is about how do we live on a day-to-day basis. If we've entered the kingdom of God, this is an invisible reality that, that we as Christians are living in, that it's not fully come yet. How do we live at our daily table? What's interesting is we look, going into verse 24, what the disciples start doing. The disciples are like, great, kingdom of God has come, new covenant is here, this is awesome. But which one of us are the greatest in this kingdom, right? Like, is it going to be like? What do you got to do? Like, I want to be great, right? I want to sit right next to Jesus. Like, what do we? What do we do here? Who's going to be greatest? And they say, Well, I'm kind of great because I did this. And they say, No, but you also did. You know, so I don't know. And they begin arguing, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And so let's let's look and see what Jesus says. So starting in verse twenty four, <clears throat> a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Uh, Let the greatest come as young. sorry. And the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Well, is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves So they begin arguing, okay, your kingdom's come, we're in your kingdom. Well, how do we be great? Like I want to be great in the kingdom of God. And this is kind of I think our natural heart tendency. If I'm going to be somewhere, I want to be great in it, right? Like I want to have power and authority. I want to do things. So so how do we be great? And as I read this this week, I thought, man, Jesus is going to let him have it, right? Like this is the Christian thing to do, right? Like you say you're not great. You're a sinner. Like, Jesus is great. He just said he's going to protect you by his blood. Don't even think about being great. Just bow at Jesus' feet. Don't do anything. Like, you don't need to do anything. Don't even think about being great. But this isn't what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't come in and rebuke them. What he does is amazing. He actually tells them, all right, this is how you be great. You want to be great? Let me tell you how to be great in my kingdom. And this is is the daily table. This is how we be great in God's kingdom. So what he's doing is he gives us this illustration in verse 27. In verse 27, he says, okay, well, who's greater? The one that's reclining at the table, who's just sitting there consuming the food, or the one who's waiting on the table, who's serving it, who's bringing the food, who's making the food? Which one's greater? Well, in the world, it's the one reclining, right? If you've made it to where you just get to sit back and have people serve you, you're greater, right? You've done some good things, and that is who's greater. But he says, not so with you. In my kingdom, it's not going to be the one who reclines that's the greater, but the one who serves. What he's doing again is he's saying, in my kingdom, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work like the way of the business world. It doesn't work like the way of American society, where we race to the top by crushing those beneath us. He says, no, 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 That's not how it's going to go in my kingdom. The great ones in my kingdom are going to be the ones who lay their lives down and serve. He says it's going to be the opposite of the ways of the world. So let me illustrate it this way. This last December, uh, my wife and I uh, threw a a Christmas party over in the Omar East Room here. And by my wife and I, I mean she threw the party, and I essentially attended it. But uh, she, she put on this party, and there's Tons of food, drinks, laughter, music. It was awesome. It was fun. There's tons of people. But here's what I noticed about my wife. That week, she spent the day before coming here, getting everything set up, having everything look really good. Then that day, she got there a couple hours before the party to set up the tables and make sure everything was set up and the music's playing and the ambiance is right and everything's looking amazing. And then when people started coming, she raced to the door and she was greeting everybody, grabbing the the food or the drink that they brought, and she was setting it all up. And throughout the whole party, she's making sure that everything is just right and that everybody's connected and meeting people and that this is a great time. And then afterwards, she's one of the very last ones, cleaning everything up and, and getting everything put away. And at the end, she had barely eaten or drank anything. She really didn't do a whole lot of consuming because the whole time she was Serving. She was doing things for other people. And this is what Jesus is talking about that is great in his kingdom. He says, Do not be the one that comes and just consumes everything. He says, Be the one that lays down your life and your wants for the sake of others. That's what's great in my kingdom. He doesn't say, Disciples, don't try to be great. He says, Be great by racing to the bottom. I think if, if you're a, a mom in the room, especially with young kids, you probably know this really well. I think about even just for you guys at, at dinner time. Well say you got a couple kids, and you're trying to wrangle them up, and one is coloring on the walls. The other one's crying because they're hungry. The third one's screaming from the washing machine. It's like chaos, and, and so you're expected to prepare all the food and get that all together, then get them at the table, and then One's upset because there's something green on his plate. The other one's already eaten his whole first plate. This one threw their food on the floor. So you're getting second and convincing this one to eat their vegetables and picking all the food up for this one. And this one now wants thirds. And now he's throwing his food on the floor and and it's chaos. And then after they inhale the food, they all just go and leave. And now you got to clean up all the food. And by the end of the night, you're just lucky if you got some cold dinner, right? Like it's chaos. You give up those hours to serve people. And I think Jesus is saying, that's what's great in my kingdom. Not the ones who are consistently looking out for themselves, but the ones who are loving, serving, and protecting others. What Jesus says is the ones who are great in my kingdom are like these. Friends, what's great in the kingdom of God is when my wife gave up her party to serve other people. What's great is when you moms give up of your meal and sanity for the sake of your children. What's great in the kingdom is musicians when you come here on Thursday night and then you get here at 7 a.m. on Sunday morning so that the music can be just right so we can engage in the worship of God. What's great in the kingdom of God is all you men with trucks who basically have all your Saturdays taken up because you're moving people. What's great in the kingdom of God is the husband who forfeits his hobbies and his desires so that he can help his wife flourish. What's great in the kingdom is the one who makes six figures and gives almost all of it away to advance the kingdom of God. What's great in the kingdom is the doctor who uproots their life to go to a place in the world where there's little to no access of the gospel. What's great in God's kingdom is not the ones who look to consume, but the ones who look to serve and to give so that they can cling closer to Christ. This is our daily table. This is kingdom life. It's not about racing to the top, but the greats are the ones who race to the bottom. The greats are the ones who serve. And City Light, my heart this week, for us as a church, would we, that we would be a radically devoted church to living this type of kingdom life. That we would be giving up of our desires and ourself first so that we could love and serve others. That we would be a church defined by our love and service of others. And see, like, when we come to take communion every week, we are not only remembering how we entered the kingdom, but we're committing to this kingdom life. Jesus says, this is how you live in my kingdom. And when you take the broken, bread and the poured out juice, and you see that that symbolizes Christ's example. What you're saying is, I too will follow his example. You see, at the end of this passage, at the end of 27, he says, I am the one among you who serves. He's saying, follow my example. And when we come to take communion, we're saying Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom because he gave his life for us, and now we too commit to living a life dedicated by service and love. So that is our daily table. Now finally, Jesus is going to conclude with a third table. He's going to end this whole thing with the third table, and I'm going to call this heaven's table. This is heaven's table, because the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, I can stand up here and say, let's be a church that lays down our lives. Let's, let's serve others. Let's do this. But there is nothing in my natural heart that wants to do that. Like, if we can just be honest, like, like, my heart wants you guys to serve me. Like, my heart doesn't want to continually lay down my life for my wife. My heart doesn't consistently want to serve you guys and love you guys. All of our hearts in our sinful nature do not want to do this. And the the beauty of Jesus is that he doesn't just tell us here, well, just do it anyway, right? Like, I did it, so you do it. He doesn't just say, just buck up and and get this done and just suffer for me. He doesn't just guilt us into this, but he gives us the motivation for living a kingdom life, and that motivation is heaven's table. So let's finish this text and look what he refers to here. Verse 28, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and that you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What Jesus is telling his disciples here is that we're not only going to look back, you're not only going to look at how you entered the kingdom, but I want you to stay focused on looking forward. He says, the motivation for you to live a kingdom life defined by love and service is the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. When that day fully comes, and he says that that day, there's going to be a feast. There's going to be a marriage feast. There's going to be a table, heaven's table, that you will sit at. And in Revelation 19, we see a picture of this table. In Revelation 19, there's a story, and it shows when Jesus, King of kings, comes back, and all of us, all of his people, come to dwell with him. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the Lamb's table. Heaven's table is the Lamb's table. This is where he fully reigns and rules, and when he comes back, the King of Kings over who was and is and is to come, this King, when he comes back, he finds great joy in throwing a huge feast, this marriage supper, this reception hall where we get to have this huge feast with our King Jesus. You know, this last June, uh, I got married over at the chapel, and after the ceremony, we came into this room. And we sat in this room, and it was full. Three to four hundred people in this room, and there was this tiny little dance floor, and there was Food and there was laughter and there was music and there was dancing and lots of sweating and singing and it was it was insane. But at one point, I stood up here with my bride and we got to look out at our friends and our family and everybody singing and everybody rejoicing. And that moment just filled my heart with joy that we could have this feast together. And what Jesus is saying is that one day there's going to be an even greater feast. He said, when my bride, the church, all of us, when we are fully unified with him, he's throwing a huge feast. There's going to be a huge feast, a marriage supper for us. And we get to come and sit next to our king, Jesus. And we not only get to just be there, we get to partake in the joy and the satisfaction and all the pleasures of enjoying God forevermore. He says, City Light, that's your motivation that's your motivation. You don't have to try to consume the meager satisfactions and and powers of this world. He says, give those up, not just because I don't want you to have any fun. He says, if you give those up, there's an even better one for you. I don't want you to just suffer here for a while. I want you to forsake those so that even more people can enjoy my feast to come. The reason we can give up of our lives here is because one day we will sit at a table with King Jesus in this huge party and this huge feast, and we get to partake of that table so we can give up of this table. This is the fulfillment of the kingdom, the day that the church, Jesus's bride, you and I get to sit at Jesus' table and eat with him. Serve at this table so you can recline at that table. This is our motivation. And I think in this chapter, in his last teaching, simply put, what Jesus needs us to know is that the kingdom of God is all about the Lamb of God. There is nothing else that is the center and the focal point. That it is his blood that protects us. It is his example that we follow. And it's his table that we get to partake in in the future. The kingdom of God is about the Lamb of God. And as the music plays for Jesus in Luke 22, and he dialed in for us, his final plea for us is to make it about the Lamb. Have the Lamb's blood protect you and find shelter under it. Follow the Lamb's example by giving up of this life with the motivation that when the kingdom of God fully comes, that you will sit at His table to come. And so City Light, to close, what I want to do is uh, we're actually going to take communion this morning. And what we want to do is if you're a communion server, you can go ahead and head back and grab the elements but, City Lot, I want to end this sermon by, by actually speaking into what we're doing when we approach. You know, we were talking about this as a staff team. In the Bible, there's only a couple times you get to really teach on communion it's the Gospels and, and one time that Paul mentions it. And so, what I want to do is I want to just finish in the last couple minutes by just reminding us what we are doing when we come to the proverbial table, when we come and we take the bread and the juice. You see, We believe that the bread and the juice that you're going to come and take, that it's not magical, that it's not supernatural, that they are just those elements. But we believe that you have a real spiritual encounter with Christ because of what you're saying by taking them. So what we do when we come forward is first, as I said, we remember. When you grab the bread and you dip it in the juice, you are remembering the broken body and the shed blood of the Lamb. You're confessing that the blood of the Lamb is your only hope, is your only peace, is your righteousness. That, that's what it is. There's nothing but the blood, that, that is what saves us. And we remember back to how we entered the kingdom. Secondly, as you take that, you are committing to a kingdom life. You are saying, as the Lamb came to serve, I too am committing to a kingdom life. Because he forsook all else to save us, we too will be defined by love and service. And third, what we're doing is we're anticipating the feast to come. As you take that, that tiny little piece of bread and you dip it in just a little bit of juice, what you're doing as you partake in that is you are saying, my motivation is the great feast to come. Not the meager little bread and not the little bit of juice, but that one day there's going to be a great feast. And that's where my hope is. That's where my fuel for my life is, is in this feast to come. We are proclaiming to ourselves, to our church and to the world that we are saved by the blood of the lamb, that we are following the lamb, and that one day we will feast with the lamb. And so Christians, as you come, Know that this is what you are doing. Now, you've heard us say it before. If you are not a believer in the room this morning, we would ask that you would just stay seated. And we ask you to not partake, not because we want this to be like an inclusive club that that you don't really get to partake in, but because if you are not protecting your protection by the blood of the Lamb, if it is not by faith alone that you are saved, if you're not committing to a kingdom life or anticipating the hope of the future, then really this is meaningless to you. For this is a spiritual encounter with the Lamb of God. But I would say, if maybe you've never taken communion before, or or maybe you've been taking it wrongly, or you haven't properly believed in these things for months or for years, I would encourage you today to place your faith in the blood of the Lamb. Commit to this kingdom and anticipate the feast to come. And would you then, maybe for the first time, or for the first time in a right manner, would you come forward and would you partake in communion? So let us sing and let us partake in the Lord's Supper. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the Lamb of God. Jesus Would you draw near to us even in this moment as we come forward as a church to remember our sins forgiven, to commit to being a church that lives a kingdom life, and that we, by this small meal, that we would have our eyes fixed on the meal to come. Would you unite us together? Would you draw close to us, God? And as we sing your praises and partake in the elements, God, would you be near to us? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.